This episode brought to you by Plated.com. Prepare chef-quality meals in 30 minutes or less with Plated. Head over to Plated.com slash MILF now and get free shipping with your first order. That's Plated.com slash M-Y-L-F. Hello and welcome to MILF Talk, Make Your Life Fabulous. I'm Sophie Venable, psychologist, life coach, mother of two, and author of MILF 101, Make Your Life Fabulous. Whether you're married with children, single, divorced, or all of the above, I'm talking to you about life, love, relationships, sex, and parenting, and all that stuff we have to manage at the same time. So, do you have mommy shame? Do you have depression shame? Do you have shame around uh, being diagnosed as ADD or... Um, any number of things. My guest today is here to talk about labels and how they help us and how they really don't. So if you're struggling as a woman with a diagnosis or as a parent of a child with a diagnosis, um, stay tuned because I think you're going to find this conversation enlightening and fascinating and very helpful. So my guest today is an addiction expert. He's uh, helped us out before talking about everything from marijuana to sex and porn addiction and also ADD treatment. He's a fine looking well-educated type lecturing at UCLA and Cal State Long Beach. He is heavily involved in research and dedicated to exploring holistic treatment options. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Adi Jaffe. Woo! Thank you, thank you. Yay, bar applause. So... You have recently done a TED Talk. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It was exciting. It was a TEDx. Oh, yeah? Um, that's, that's still super cool. It was, it was really cool. Yeah. Big props. Thank you. Thank so you so much. Your, uh, your talk was mainly focused on shame and labels, correct? Yeah. Um, it was. I focus on uh, shame around mental health labels, specifically, mm-hmm. as you kind yeah. of uh, alluded to in your introduction. But yeah, that's. Uh, I, I really talked a lot about really some of the, I guess, shame that I've had to fight through having specific labels applied to me in my life and what that's meant as as my life has uh, progressed over the last 15 years. So um, so let me ask you this. If I'm in a 12-step program and I say I am an alcoholic, that is a label that they encourage me to keep because I, I need to be reminded, right, that the addiction is cunning, right? Right. And I've always wondered i i can really see why that's important okay but i also wonder just on a spiritual emotional soul level what it means to really own a label like that yeah and not look at the fact that we can maybe get to the other side of that yeah so i think um there are a couple of things that you're talking about there one is the fact that you know in the 12-step world once an addict always an addict so you don't get to be an ex-addict ever um, okay, so right. That's, that's one thing that's important to understand there. So that's part of the ownership. The other piece is they look at it as sort of fighting people's ego. So no, mm, matter, no mm-hmm. matter what else you do in the world, you're an addict. And that's a primary kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's a primary definer of who you are. Uh, and then one of the other pieces that exists in, in AA is a lot of times that's that's kind of the central theme, the central identifier that they all share. And Mm, so a it's kind of, of a bonding. Step, yeah, because thing a lot of twelve helpful, step yeah. groups, the the you know they start socializing, dating, et cetera, within that group, mm-hmm. and so it's sort of like the, their common denominator. And I think that's one of the main reasons that it's used. But I think you're right. Right along with it, there's maybe a little or too little consideration for what that also means as somebody identifies over 
and over and over with a label that primarily in the world is considered a very, very negative, um, has very negative connotations. Sure. I suppose that if you could say, um, I'm an addict and I'm not ashamed of it. Right. You know, I'm an addict. I'm totally okay with it. I own it. I have no shame around it anymore. I've completely worked through that. I know that my limits are A, B, and C. Sure. I suppose no harm, no foul. Yeah, yeah. I think, right? I think if you can but redefine issue, what the label means to you, yeah. there's a big deal there. Right. Um, I think, again, so what, you know. So I, the, the, I, the core problem there is the shame around the label, right? Yeah, and, I, and I've done some research on this when I was at UCLA, and that shame of identifying as an addict or an alcoholic can be one of the primary things that keeps people out of asking for help and getting help because, you know, Initially, you might be able to work through the shame of what that label means over years and years and years. But initially, to take that extra step and identify as that can be highly problematic for people. And sometimes it's almost uh, a requirement. I mean, when I, you know, I've had a couple of uh, rehab experiences myself, and one of the first hours that I'd spend in the first residential rehab that I'd gone to, you know, I, I stood in the middle of a circle and they asked me why I'm there. And it took me 45 minutes to realize that the answer that they wanted was because I'm an addict. Oh. And <laughs> I wasn't allowed to leave the circle almost inst- until, I mean, I'm sure I could have run away, but <laughs> I, I wasn't allowed to leave the circle until I got to that answer. Mm-hmm. That answer didn't come up to me because that was nothing that I identified with. Now I actually identify as an ex-meth addict, mm-hmm. which is also kind of blasphemous in some groups and not in others, et cetera. Right. But I think that we have to really understand and respect the value and the the importance of these labels that we apply to people because they come with a lot of meaning mm-hmm. and sometimes oftentimes we don't get to actually own the meaning of what that is there's sort of a social socially accepted meaning around you know what does it mean to have depression or to have ADHD or Even to be an addict an asthmatic sure. i remember when i was diagnosed with asthma it was just right on the border of it still being this ridiculous stigma Okay. Of like being a psychosomatic illness. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it was almost people looked at you like, well, like, oh, really? Asthma, you're, you're really? Just, okay. Yeah, you know. And so, uh, so what did that feel like? I mean, what is that when you're told that you have this mm, thing that people don't believe is a real condition? Oh, it's it's well, it's frustrating on many levels, and it wasn't very well managed back then either. You know, you'd had to use like two different inhalers four times a day. You're like, oh, wow. you know, puff, puff, puff. I mean, it was you know, and even allergies were sort of considered like still kind of like, oh yeah, sure, you got allergies, you know. And you, yeah, when you eat an onion and your like whole lip swells up, that's a real thing. Like right. maybe it is in my head, but it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> no. Absolutely. So it's very, it makes you feel, uh, made me feel um, embarrassed. You know, I was just uh, embarrassed by sort of the complaining. I felt a little like a Mm. hypochondriac, you know. Because it sounds like at the time, it felt like that label came along with some hypochondria. Yes. Yeah. And so so here's what I, the, the kind of thesis of what I try to talk about is, there are dual responsibilities here. First of all, as the label, and it sounds like both of us have labels and pretty much every person listening. Oh, I got way more labels than that, too. Yeah. And every person listening. <laughs> some to are this, more fun than others. <laughs> every person listening to this has dealt with some labels in their life. Yes. And so part of it is our responsibility because, you know, what I talk about. So I have ADHD. Obviously, I've had addiction problems before in my life. There are a lot of different things that I can apply as labels to myself <laughs> as well. But a label is a generalization that is essentially never 100% correct. And so as long as mm-hmm. you understand that about yourself, you can say, okay, well, yes, I identify as an addict, but you know, there are three or four components of what people think being an addict means that I don't think apply to me, or mm. I have ADHD, but 
this is the kind of ADHD person that I identify as, et cetera. Right. Now, that takes a lot of self-will, self-confidence, wherewithal just to, to be able yeah. to kind of step aside of experts, right? Because it's really experts who are telling you who you are as a human being. So that's the one piece is we have to own some of that ourselves. But I think the other piece that's important is for all of us, again, who are listening and know other people who've been labeled, our kids who've been labeled ADHD or who are struggling with depression or our spouses who've had addiction problems or have depression, et cetera, and really take a step back and put some work into considering what do I think this label means? What does what has the world told me this means? What am I actually seeing in, let's say, my partner or my kid? Mm-hmm. So which elements of what I'm told applies here actually apply in my world? Mm-hmm. And take some real time to get to know the people instead of believing somehow that once they've been identified as having ADHD, you now understand them a million times better. Their personality hasn't changed from before they had gotten the ADHD. It's just that now you have a label to identify it. Right. Make sure you don't think that this label is somehow a pure, perfect identification of this person because it's not. It's a subcomponent, sometimes a small subcomponent of what this person's life is. And even that subcomponent comes with different levels. So not everybody's ADHD is as severe, right? There are all mm-hmm. these different levels of it. Oh, yeah. And then they have subcomponents. So with inattention, without inattention, with hyperactivity, without hi- hyperactivity, all these different components. Sit down and do a little bit more concentrated work because I think what we've done is we've ended up in this world. We talked about this right before the show went on. You know, this woman is uh, menopausal. Right. We somehow think that all of a sudden we understand we everything understand about her. her. Right. Now we know what, oh, well, she's menopausal. Yeah. That's why. Right. Or she has postpartum or she is uh, bipolar Yeah. or she is depressed. And I think that's a big one. Like, uh, I'm depressed. Yeah. And and it comes, I, again, I want to really stress, it comes from both directions, right? So when somebody is depressed, I hate it as much when people say, well, they just have to pick themselves up by their bootstraps or just get out of bed and everything yeah. will get better. <laughs> That's not the way depression works, right? Now, if you have mild depression, maybe getting a little bit of sunlight and getting a little exercise will push you out of it. If you have severe depression, not so much. Here's where the intelligence and and research piece gets into this. You've got to know what you're really dealing with, not just slap on a label. Um, so I don't like it when people just ignore the label completely and believe that it's all psychosomatic. Yeah. But at the same time, these overgeneralized sort of situations can lead to massive amounts of shame. I mean, shame to the level where we, look, everybody listening walks around with a mask every day of their life. You know, we walk Mm -hmm. around, we might be feeling a little bit down, we might be feeling a little manic, we might be anxious, and we pretend like everything is okay to 99.9% of the people that we see. Part of that by itself is shame, and part of that is managing social interaction. Part of what I'm suggesting is, I'm hoping that society can start moving towards this place where we accept that people have these deviations, these differences, Mm -hmm. and that it starts being okay to share them even when it comes to mental health or, you know, things that we believe in this moment are mental health only, as you maybe it sounds like you've struggled with around asthma, which we now understand much better. And so we know how to manage better, understand that it's a physiological condition. Mm -hmm. That actually can be helped greatly through you know energy work therapy anxiety uh, management mindfulness meditation absolutely because we are whole absolutely everything is psychosomatic to some degree yeah. right well i mean it so, all comes from the brain it all, if, it's, yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it's psychology and guess what the brain is an actual physical thing just because you don't see it it's between your ears and it's doing things <laughs> it's right doing now things. it's like this little machine yeah it's got all kinds of variations between humans 
I love to cook, but finding time is so difficult. The last thing I want to do is go shopping at the end of a long day. That's why I'm so excited about Plated. Maybe you've seen these guys on Shark Tank. Plated is for people who love cooking fresh, exciting new dishes, but don't have time to find all the perfect ingredients. Here's how it works. Go to plated.com forward slash milk and choose from amazing chef-designed recipes with new selections every week. Next, the culinary pros at Plated lovingly fill a refrigerated box with just the perfect pre-portioned ingredients for your dinner. Nothing is wasted. Everything's delivered to your door, fresh meat, poultry, fish, farm fresh veggies, spices, everything you need on a date you choose. I ordered the Caesar steak lettuce cups, fantastic. Super easy to put together, directions were clear, and tonight I get to cook chicken under a brick. I'm so excited. Everything looks so fantastic. Oh, and I tried the yogurt pineapple parfait. Definitely an awesome dessert. Don't worry if you're not home for your delivery. Your plated box keeps everything fresh until midnight on the day that it arrives, even on warm days, so you don't have to worry about rushing home. Prepare chef-quality meals in 30 minutes or less with Plated. Hurry over to plated.com forward slash MILF now and get free shipping with your first order. That's plated.com forward slash M-Y-L-F. One of the things I like to explain to people about shame in my understanding of it, my concept of it, is that when we're sad, we can grieve and we can get to the other side of that sadness, right? Let's say it's not a, you know, physiological depression. Sure, sure. Let's say it's a situational, you know, we, we ultimately time can get us through. When we're angry, we can express ourselves. We can uh, punch pillows. We can work through it. You know, we can get to the other side of anger. We can get to the other side of fear even, right? Yeah. With shame, shame's, shame is not something you can wait out. It's not something you're just going to get to the other side of, yeah. right? It's it's a spiral. It's more of a, a spiral than I think it is linear. You can't just sort of, you can't really grieve shame. Right. You, so, you know what I'm no, saying? Totally. So, so the, the difference, let's talk about the difference between guilt and shame. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, the other things that you talked about are emotional responses. Mm -hmm. Feeling ashamed is even different than having shame. Mm -hmm. Because yes. when you're feeling ashamed, you, you might be momentarily emotionally kind of reacting in that, mm -hmm. in that sense. But when you have shame Yeah, no, that's a good exercise for that. Oh, okay, cool. I love it. Uh, <laughs> versus um, shame versus guilt, et cetera. You know, guilt is when you feel bad about something that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, sad is, you know, when you feel down about a situation that's going on at the moment or, or because of a chemical imbalance. Shame is you feel bad about who you are. Mm -hmm. And so you've taken on this identity that you feel bad about. And as you pointed out, you can't just simply walk away from that because it's your concept of who you are. So having depression means you feel sad. Being ashamed about having depression means that A, you feel sad, and B, right along with that, you feel horrible about the fact that you are you taxing people with it. You feel so like you're who, a bad person. Who you are person. is wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And so that requires a lot more work, and it's part of why I'm saying as a society, I think we need to really watch out when we create this shame in people because when we do it, they don't get to escape just because they feel like it. We've now put them in a box. And we talked before about an experiment that I'll talk about that I think it applies to racial shame, but it can, in the same exact thing, any broad visions of shame. So everybody talks about you know the black, white, African-American um, performance gap. But there's been research for- Scholastically. Over, scholastically, yeah. yeah uh, that has been talked about for over 30 years. So it's not new research, but it shows that if you take African-American students versus white, um, students, let's say, and you compare them on a performance test where you tell them ahead of time, this is an intelligence test, you find that performance gap. 
if you eliminate telling them explicitly that it's an intelligence test and you just give the same questions as part of an experimental manipulation, no performance gap. And then if you do the exact same sort of thing as that second example, and you just have a racial checkbox beforehand, and mm -hmm, you make like check are you check are you African American, white, mm -hmm. Hispanic, etc., the performance gap shows right back up. Wow. So as soon as the students identify either, well, when it comes to intelligence, I'm supposed to be performing more poorly, or when it comes to my race, we're supposed to be performing more poorly, they take that on themselves. And I think we really, that's our responsibility. That's not the student's responsibility. We need to understand when we do that to people because when we do it to them, we've taken away a lot of choice from their life. We've, we've made it, we've now put on this onerous sort of responsibility on them to overcome our perception of them. And that's not fair. Because we mm -hmm. all have, like you said before, we all have differences amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's struggling with depression, they're already struggling. Right. They don't need to now, on top of that, have to deal with my perceptions of what their depression means in terms of their performance at work or in a relationship or all those sorts of things because that's my deal, not theirs. And so I think that we need to kind of start feeling much more comfortable with a, a nuanced and expanded version of, of these shameful labels you know women used to be called hysterical yeah and that came with a lot i mean so many different things that women would do back in the 50s and 60s would just get written off as well that's because she's being hysterical right they don't have any control they're just you know run by their emotions and yep yeah. and, and and obviously you know that's something i haven't dealt with personally but that's something they are now they now have to overcome somehow they still have to yeah it's like it's such an old idea that we still deal with it if we like if if someone is labeled as menopausal or you know then they are you assume that they're temperamental and they have no sex drive and they're this or that and there's all of these labels that go along with it which is part of the the deal with aging in general sure. you know is that oh now you're a woman over 50 well we know what that means yeah, yeah. you know and it's it's Absolutely. and we all have things that we identify with and that's fine but in an institutionalized situation i find it Th that that's got to be a really hard line to walk because we do want to provide help to those that need it, right? If the school system is not one size fits all and you have some accommodations that can be made for certain kids, uh, maybe that might need a little quieter place to take a test or they might need sure. a little bit longer on a test. We don't want to throw them out of the school. We want to make some accommodations. But I do know from personal experience, that that is really difficult for the child. Yeah. It's so embarrassing. It is. They don't even want the help. Yeah. It's like, it's, it, I mean, and, and not every kid, but I, but I mean, what do you do with, with that? Like, how sure, do I mean, you it's... help, how do you help that child reframe the diagnosis essentially yeah. to, um, go ahead and accept the help. Yeah, so I think, I mean, you know, there could be so many different ways that I'm thinking about, but you were talking mm -hmm. about kids who need maybe a quiet environment, mm -hmm. which is a noisier one, et cetera. I'm not, fortunately, maybe I'm, I'm not dealing with these things on a daily basis in an mm -hmm. educational setting where this comes up a lot. I mean, when I teach at UCLA, kids go to take the test at uh, the Office of Student with Disabilities, but, you know, it's not like they come into the class, take their test, and have to get up and then go to the, the place. They just don't come to the lecture hall. Right. They go right there. That doesn't happen in element, element, elementary schools. Right. Now I can't speak. Um, <laughs> I guess part of the deal is, you know, you sit in class, you get the test, and then you have to walk out and sit somewhere. Or something. Mm -hmm. So I think these little changes that we're yeah. talking about are, yeah. are the kind of things we can start really considering a little bit. Okay, if you have a, even if you have ADHD, 
I think I'm hoping one day we start moving away from these broad labels mm -hmm. because there's this thing in neuroscience called endophenotypes. And it's essentially what are the subcomponents of ADHD? Inability to retain focus, uh, inability to pay attention for long periods of time, um, inability to appropriately shift attention from one thing to another, high risk taking and impulsivity. These are, so I just named five different ones, but there are others. Mm -hmm. Not all kids with ADHD have, have all, all those of them things. At, at, no. at the same levels. Mm -mm. And so if we start talking less about a kid with ADHD and more about, oh, well, Joey has problems paying attention for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So how do we target things in a way that helps Joey pay attention for longer periods of time? Mm -hmm. Or how do we change the learning materials for Joey mm -hmm. so that he can pay attention at shorter periods of time and still do well in school, right? right. Um, those are the sort of considerations I'm talking about making is, you know, these broad things carry along so many meanings with them that oftentimes are not true. I mean, I live in a world where I'm an ex-meth addict, right? Again, that's the way I identify. I drink socially, not a problem. But if you talk to most people, mm -hmm. I'm an anomaly or I don't exist. Addicts, right. addicts who use substances non-problematically don't exist. You actually can't. I'm, I'm either not an addict at all, and so I'm identifying wrong, or um, I'm relapsing at the moment. Kids with ADHD, you know, I was never diagnosed as ADHD when I was a kid. It wasn't until graduate school that I was diagnosed because when my mother took me to get diagnosed in Israel in the you know early 80s, one of the criteria was low performance in school. I wasn't performing poorly right. in school. Right. And so they that said was he the have ADHD. that was sort of the, the, the was barometer for everything. That was it. Well, getting A's, who cares? Exactly. Not <laughs> so I, ironically though, maybe that helped me. Not getting that diagnosis early on mm -hmm. maybe meant that I just thought mm -hmm. I was the kid who talked in class all the time and never did homework. So now when my environment changed in Israel, Nobody cared about my homework. Mm -hmm. If I didn't hand them in, as long as I did well on the test, everything was fine. Moved right. to the United States, as everybody knows here, homework is a big deal. Mm -hmm. I cannot hand in homework. I love telling the story because it's it's so indicative of my academic career in the U.S. I was the kid in my math class, and if uh, my math teacher from element from uh, high school is listening, <laughs> he'll know this. My my high school math teacher had a random homework check every day in class. I became the random homework check. He would just walk to my desk, asked me if I did homework. I would say no. He would give me a zero for homework that day and walk back. All the other students never got checked. Homework and I don't go, don't get along. <laughs> I mean, I can't plan. Even to this day, my assistant, I mean, we were joking before taping. I need somebody to tell me what my appointments are for that day because I will miss two or three of them if somebody doesn't tell me. Right. That's part of what my ADHD manifests right. like. Um, but I but found you ways know to that about yourself and you figure ways to overcome And I found ways to it. overcome it. Right. But that would have been a very different conversation when I was four or five. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, well, you're, your kid's going to have a real problem in school. I didn't have a problem with school. I had a problem with homework. Right. Um, that's not the same thing. I'm not dumb. I'm not an idiot. I do really, really well on many, many things. And I do poorly on other things. I think most of us struggle with that. Um, I feel like if there was a parenting manual that everybody had to read before they had their child, it should include, you know, the different kinds of intelligences. Like, you know, there's there's we teach to math, English or like math, reading and sports. That's yeah. and that's pretty much it. You yeah. know, and there's there's music intelligence and there's um, there's oh, and there's um uh, emotional, emotional intelligence intelligent. and like being able to read a room and like I mean there's just there's so and, and some people are auditory and some people are visual and some people are you know and you don't 
you don't learn anything about this until like your kid is sort of having problems and then the doctor says, well, maybe you should do this. And if, and, and, and my God, doctors, there's such a wide spectrum. Sure. Some will say, yeah, he has a problem, take this pill. And some will say, hey, maybe you can study martial arts and you can look at this Eastern philosophy and you can right. see how maybe he can use books on tape or whatever, yeah. you know, like, it's luck of the draw yeah. where no. you're going to end up. And so nobody has this information until they're in crisis. And, and now they got to go around calling everybody and saying, my kid has this issue. My kid yeah. has this label. Yeah. Right? And I think, I don't know, again, my kids are really, really young. They're three and five. But um, maybe you can tell me, when parents find out about these sort of diagnoses, there's parental shame. Because oh, all of absolutely. a sudden, you're sitting what, there going, what I do what, wrong? What I do wrong? Yeah. And how, what do I have to do? My poor kid, he's not going to be as good as all the other kids. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with a school full of parents who are ashamed, kids who are ashamed about what's going mm-hmm. on with them. And I see some parents who talk about this amongst themselves, but primarily they hide, is what I see. Is they sort of say, well, we got to deal with this so all the other families don't find out that our kid is. Um, damage somehow mm-hmm. and so they kind of you know they, they're doing it in the background again while wearing that mask and trying to pretend like everything is perfect and i do feel and we i think this was ultimately the conclusion that we came to <laughs> is that the prob the problem at hand the situation at hand the condition at hand whatever you want to call it is what it is right and it's how we handle it it's the shame around it yeah. that is going to determine how this affects your child or yourself in the long run, Yeah. right? Is this a label that they're gonna carry forever? Is this something that um, that they're going to identify with forever? And you know, there's no quick answer as to how to avoid that, except to, um, be careful with your words. Yeah. Right? I yeah, mean, and I think that's I think that's to me the big message. It's still gonna be a dual responsibility. The people who are struggling still have to navigate and figure out the best way to move forward, right? Mm-hmm, sure. If you have a hard time sitting down and reading a full book and you're gonna take an English class, that's something you gotta learn how to deal with. Right. If you have shame, you never go to the teacher to talk about it and you try to struggle and you never manage to read the book and you fail the class. Right. If, or you don't do well in the class. If you don't have shame about it, at least you get to go to the teacher and say, look, I have this issue. What, what can we do about this? And maybe you come to a better solution, maybe you don't. It obviously doesn't help if the teacher then shames you. Mm-hmm. So it's this dual relationship sure. we're always going to have. And I think, you know, in the United States, we live in this sort of perfection illusion, right? The notion mm-hmm. is somehow we all have to have the beautiful house with the amazing car, with the beautiful family. We all have to be incredibly fit, have money in our bank accounts at all times. And, and do really, really well in the world. And and I think that orientation to life sets us up a little bit for shame because most of us fall short when it comes to that sort of, of the barometer. Idea. And by the way, no wrinkles, perfect boobs, sure. perfect butt, and um, uh, what is it, 15% body fat? <laughs> Something like that. I have perfect boobs, so I'm good there. Excellent. <laughs> Lucky. So, yeah, I think... So I think it's important for people to remember that people with, say, dyslexia can get a PhD, Absolutely. right? If you don't have shame around your dyslexia, then you get your books on tape. I know Or some. you manage, of course. But there's probably many at this point. Absolutely. So on one hand, the label helped us recognize the issue, right? So that somebody who was had a worse label, which was, I'm stupid, right? Sure. Yeah. We then understood that, oh, you're not stupid, 
your brain reverses words. You have dyslexia. Right. Okay. And then dyslexia had its own stigma, right? Absolutely. So, however, if there's no shame in the label, if we can take that out of it, then all it is is information. Exactly. Right? And exactly. we can we can use it to our advantage. I talk to people about it as this. I, I, I call our body brain thing a machine. Yes. It's just my shorthand for it. But know your machine. Know it really, really well. Because if you have a Prius, don't try to go 200 miles an hour. It's never going to work. And you're going to drive yourself crazy <laughs> trying to do it. And if you have a, if your car revs up really, really fast, then don't try to save gas. You're going to need a lot of gas. But whatever it is, know your machine mm -hmm. and then work the best that you can with it. Find the job, the calling that is the best fit for it. Go after things that interest you, regardless of what people out there kind of say. Start owning it. Mm -hmm. And then if we all start getting comfortable with that notion, then no machine is shamed over another. And, and who you are is, is enough. Okay. Yeah, You are enough. Take that with you. Love it. So tell us where to find your TED Talk, your um, TEDx Talk. So TEDxUCLA is the main website where this thing happens right now. They have that annoying announcement that it'll be up any day. So oh. they will share the videos, but hopefully by the time that this is out, um, we will be there. And uh, I'll definitely share it on LADocJ either on Instagram or Twitter as soon as it comes out. Okay, awesome. We'll look for it. I look forward to seeing it. Um, you can like me on Facebook, please do, because I want you to be addicted to me. <laughs> or you can tweet me at Sophie underscore Venable. Uh, my book, MILF 101, is available in paperback or in Kindle, iBooks, Nook. Um, remember, you can always download your free goal setting and life rescripting workbook on my website, makeyourlifefabulous.com. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. D. I always love having you here. And thank you all for listening. This is Sophie Venable reminding you that you don't have to make your life perfect. Just go make it fabulous. Fabulous.